1: Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your genes. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I speak with Toby Hendy about plant physics and Samira Ailey about ant venom. But first up, here's the news of Brains in a Jar. Brains live outside the body. A team from Yale University have kept brains alive for 36 hours after removing them from pigs. A series of tubes maintain circulation so that brains can be studied in close-up detail as a whole living organ instead of slices in a dish. The Yale team call their system Brain X. The Yale team plans to construct a comprehensive atlas of connections between human brain cells spanning large regions of the brain, and thus more easily traced in a complete intact organ. Over the last four years, the Yale University team experimented on nearly 200 pig brains obtained from a slaughterhouse, restoring their circulation using a system of pumps, heaters and bags of artificial blood warmed to body temperature. Brainex carries oxygen to the brainstem, the cerebellar artery, and areas deep in the centre of the brain. The brains were revived up to four hours after the pigs had been decapitated. The pig brains are believed to have no awareness, but billions of individual cells in the brains were found to be healthy and capable of normal activity. The Yale neuroscientist determined from the electroencephalogram EEG brainwaves that the pigs were in a comatose state. The team acknowledged that some of the channel-blocking anti-inflammatory drugs they've put in their circulatory mix could be sedating the brains. The brains have no input from senses and no output in motor control, so if the brains could wake up, they would be in sensory deprivation. The team hope in the future that disembodied human brains could become guinea pigs for testing exotic cancer cures and speculative Alzheimer's treatments too dangerous to try on the living. 17 neuroscientists and bioethicists, including the Yale team, published an editorial in Nature titled The Ethics of Experimenting with Human Brain Tissue arguing that experiments on human brain tissue may require special protections and rules. Ironically, the editorial doesn't discuss this new technique of keeping entire brains alive, but obviously it needs ethical guidelines even more than the techniques already in use. The news was announced at an ethics conference on the consequences of neuroscience research held at the US National Institutes of Health, and has been submitted to a scientific journal for publication. Maybe Sergio Canavero's quest for whole-body transplants for people dying of muscular dystrophy doesn't seem such a mad idea, as long as you don't wake up into the silent, numb darkness of sensory deprivation. Horror writer H.P. Lovecraft would be proud. (music) You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, poking plant physics. Toby Hendy is a PhD student in physics studying at the Australian National University working on the physics of plants. Toby's also interested in science communication and has her own successful YouTube channel called Tibbies. I spoke to Toby by Skype and began by asking her, are you studying what happens when plants are poked?
2: Essentially how plants respond to their environment. So plants are actually quite smart. They can sense forces and pressure. And in the case that I'm studying, they can sense when they're being attacked by a disease-causing germ or a pathogen. So like usually you might, or you probably would recognize a plant cell that's been infected by disease. The plant might show spots, bruises, wilting, something like that. And what has happened on the very small scale is that a germ has latched onto a plant cell and then stabbed through and started to take over the cell and leak nutrients. But the plant can sense that it's being attacked by sensing applied pressure of the germ. And it has a few self-defense mechanisms. It tries to stiffen the cell wall and fight off that infection. And what I'm looking at in the lab is trying to mimic diseases using tiny little needles to essentially poke plants and see how they respond, see how they protect themselves.
1: Wow. I don't think I realized that the infections were quite so violent
2: yeah, it is it is essentially like the germs are stabbing into the plant cells, but it's on a tiny scale. So we can't see this process with the naked eye, but you can under a microscope.
1: Is this only for really tiny attacks like that? Or are you also looking at how plants respond to things like insects?
2: Yeah, so I guess it all falls under the same class of sensing your environment, Like plants are smart in other ways, like the Venus flytrap, something like that. It can sense the pressure of a fly and then knows when to snap, closed and eat it. That's not what I'm looking at in particular. I'm looking at actually down on the individual cell level. What is the response? But yeah, there are responses that range from the individual cell and proteins all the way up to the entire plant.
1: So what is it that happens? What are you finding?
2: So in particular, the self-defense response in the plant that I'm looking at is that when the cell can feel the applied pressure of the germ or of my needle in the lab, the proteins inside of the cell actually rearrange and rush to the site of attack to try and strengthen the wall and I guess reinforce that area so that it's less likely to be infected So that's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at how the internal proteins rearrange to create a new structure that is better able to protect the plant.
1: And how did you come to do this research as a physicist?
2: Yeah, so I haven't said much about what the physics of it actually is. But yes, I am a physicist. My background is in physics and maths, actually. I don't have any biology background. But What's interesting to me here is that I'm using physics techniques, which is applying pressure and measuring forces and looking at structures and which structures give you the most strength, just in a biological context. So my research lab don't usually apply pressures to plant cells. Instead, they use diamonds to apply pressure to other materials for electronics, to make better electronics. So... It's just I'm taking this physics technique and using it to do something in biology. Personally, I was attracted to this because I like that sort of interdisciplinary feel and I like that I can use my physics skills to do something useful in biology.
1: And you've recently been competing in the state semi finals for FameLab?
2: Yeah, well, so I participated last month down in Melbourne in the semi finals for FameLab, which is where you share your research in three minutes. And I did well there. So I won the Melbourne semifinals, which means I get to go to the Perth national finals on May 10th, actually.
1: Congratulations.
2: Thank you. Yeah, so I guess preparing for that. Yeah, and it's, it's really fun because we get to talk about our research using no PowerPoint. It's just we get to bring some physical props on stage.
1: Did you bring any props?
2: I did for my presentation. I actually bought up two balloons and those each represented a plant cell and I took one plant cell and I popped it with a needle on stage and that was to represent a cell that had been infected by disease and then I took another balloon and I put it inside of a castle and that castle was to represent the cell wall and some of these self-defense mechanisms that I've spoken about so I put it in that castle to protect the second balloon so it didn't get popped.
1: Oh terrific. And you also have your own YouTube science channel
2: I do I I started up a a YouTube channel a few years ago actually I think I started it up because I had learnt so much from educational YouTube videos That I guess I just wanted to stay involved in that community and make my own So I made this channel and I just talk about physics or science and what it's like to study But also some ideas that I find interesting
1: And is that a lot of skill to produce because you've got to handle the cameras and the sound and the lighting, as well as the content.
2: It is like a one person job. Cause I just do it all myself, but I, f- I feel like with online video and science communication, you could spend hours and hours on it if getting everything perfect. But my personal, I guess, philosophy is that it's better to be done than to be perfect. So, you know, I do what I can. I, I do a bit of editing. But it's not extremely high production. And I think what's most important is if you can tell a good story, people will enjoy watching it.
1: So you Mm. have a lot of your videos where you're sitting on a bench or on some couches.
2: Yeah, so film on a park bench or something like that. I like to just stay real. And, you know, I found a lot of success just doing that. People seem to enjoy it. And, like, the channel has grown quite a lot in the last couple of months. So it's really exciting to see where I can take it.
1: That's great. How small do these needles have to be to mimic an infection,
2: yeah. So I am mimicking something called a pathogen, which is yeah, kind of a, a small organism, sort of like a fungus. And my needles, which are designed to be the same size as one of these pathogens, is about one tenth the width of human hair. So it's on the scale of a few microns. Um, right. So so very tiny, yeah. Very and, tiny indeed. <laughs> just poking poking very small plants as well. So the plants I use in my experiments are five-day-old seedlings and I grow them in a biology lab and then I transfer them over to the physics lab where I set up this equipment. It's called a nano-indenter and that is the thing that can apply very small pressures. It can apply very large pressures as well. But for me, I'm, I'm just gently poking the plants. I don't want to pop the cells. I just want to apply pressure and see how the cells respond. One more interesting thing about the plants I use is that they are genetically modified so that the proteins which actually rearrange under pressure have been tagged with a fluorescent molecule with the green fluorescent protein that actually comes from jellyfish, makes them glow. They've been tagged so that when I look at them under a microscope, I can see those proteins glowing green and I can tell where they are.
1: And what sort of plants are they?
2: Their scientific name is Arapidopsis. They're actually, I think, a very small seedling of a weed called mouse cress. But the reason that I'm using them is they are actually a model organism in plant biology. So, so many universities and groups do studies on this particular kind of plant that we know a lot about its genome, how it responds to things. It's kind of our... Yeah, our model plant.
1: And so is that also why you're looking at five-day-old seedlings and not mature plants?
2: Yeah, the reason that I'm looking at five-day-old plants is to just be consistent with some previous studies that have been done. You'd expect things to change if you were looking at different kinds of plants of different ages. Maybe they would take a lot more pressure to sort of trigger the response. But yeah, I'm using the the five-day-old seedlings just to be consistent with some other groups who have done studies.
1: So what's next?
2: I guess for my research, what I've looked at so far is trying to apply very small pressures to the cell, watching the proteins, watching them glow and move around and trying to quantify what is the minimum pressure that they can detect and respond to. So it's been all about sort of trying to find the minimum amount And and that's been quite difficult because when you're looking for the minimum response, it's kind of of hard to tell if you're seeing a response or not, because you might see the proteins move a little bit, but not too much. So I think in terms of the research, our next goals are to try and improve our imaging methods. So like I said, we're watching these glowing proteins move around, but it can be hard to see individual proteins. So my goals of my PhD at the moment are to improve our imaging so we can better see the cell response that's the next goal in terms of research but in terms of like other things I'm working on whether it's the YouTube or the Fame Lab I think I'm yeah just keen to get more into science communication continue to grow my audience online and see where that can go
1: well Toby Hendy thank you very much thank you That was Toby Hendy at the Australian National University, talking about the physics of plants and her YouTube channel, TIBBIES, Tibbies. And next, antibiotics? Samira Ailey just submitted her PhD and is now doing a lot of casual academic teaching. For her PhD, she looked for new insecticides using venom from ants. I visited her at the University of Technology, Sydney, and asked her, you're using insects to kill insects?
0: Exactly. So we're using insects, venom, to kill other insects. That's because that insect feeds on other insects. So we're trying to find what does that u- insect use to kill that other insect in order to, be u- to use it as an insecticide for us. That'll be natural, which means that it's better for the environment in comparison to what we're currently using, which are synthetic insecticides.
1: What type of ants are you using?
0: So my ants are actually the main one that I've focused on are South American ants. There's the bullet ant, which you might have heard of, which is Paraponera clavata. That one is the, it's not the same as the bull ant, it's the bullet ant. <laughs> so that's the most painful insect sting inflicted. Okay. And that's the one that I've worked a lot on. I've also worked on a few other ants, but mainly South American, so from the Amazon.
1: So it sounds a bit dangerous to be working on the most painful biting ant that there is.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's heaps of fun as well. (laughs) I don't have to actually collect the venoms, which is great. We have a collaborator over there who does all the collecting and he sends me the venom over and then I do all the analysis here.
1: So why South American ants?
0: This project started off as a collaboration with this group who were initially based in France but then they went over to the French Guiana as well and that's where he had a whole lot of ants access to it. It'll be easier and better for us to get them from there. So we've had a long-term collaboration with them. My lab also works on other venoms, so they worked on snakes and spiders, and what else, they worked on platypus, and a few other cool venomous animals. So that's always, so that's why we chose that one. And it's really cool, because Australia, it has a lot of the most venomous animals in the world. But ironically, I'm not working on Australian ones. (laughs) There was one that I worked on that was Australian, but didn't do much from there. I focused on the other ones.
1: I guess if the ant is the most painful bite, the bullet ant, Mm -hmm. that would make it a pretty strong venom.
0: Yeah, it is. So it's a strong venom and so far all they've known is that one particular toxin is the one that's causing all the pain. But what I've been able to show is that there's not just one thing, there's a whole lot of other proteins and peptides in there which are smaller proteins that have been that could also cause that pain and also that we can use for stuff other stuff so I was also looking into looking at antibacterial potential of these venoms so not just insecticidal potential we were also looking at antibacterial potential and some of these ants are antibacterial which was really exciting
1: would they be antifungal as well
0: definitely yeah I wasn't looking at the antifungal aspect but there are other labs in the world that are looking at the antifungal and they are which is, so they actually, what they do is that the ants try to protect their nest and their colony and their queen. So what they do is they spray their venom all over so that they don't get infected and they don't get any infections happening in their nest. So that's what we thought. Well, there's obviously something there that's causing that. So we're looking for that.
1: Right. Well, I guess that answers my next question because I was thinking originally that the ants would just be biting the insects and therefore you've got to get the insecticide into them. But if you can just spray, well, that feeds straight into agriculture.
0: Exactly. So that's what we're trying. So the overall big picture is to solve the world hunger problem. So we're looking at trying to find a way to increase our crops trying to find because at this current rate our insecticides aren't going to be able they're not working there's resistance and they're also harmful to the environment and to human health so what we're trying to find is a naturally derived bioinsecticide. so the right word is a bioinsecticide, and this one will be able to increase our crops um, because if you get rid of these insects which usually eat away all our crops then we'll be able to increase the yields because right now they actually affect Almost 20% of crops are destroyed by insect pests. And there's resistance to every single one of the insecticides that are out there already. So we're looking for a newer alternative.
1: And so you get this venom sent to you. So the venom's got to come through customs. That's got to be interesting. Yes. (laughs)
0: It's actually because the venom comes in as lyophilized material. So it's fine. There's not, it's not dangerous after that. It's not something that I'm going to inject that even if you touch it, it's not going to be harmful to you because it's been freeze dried.
1: And so once it comes in, Mm -hmm. how do you test its effectiveness?
0: So I get to do really cool experiments. So (laughs) I actually, the first thing I usually do is just to see if it's effective at all, is to inject it into crickets. So I get the venom and test it on crickets at different concentrations to see how it's working. And then that's how I narrow down which venoms I want to work on. So I was given a whole lot initially, and then I narrow it down based on, this one had a really big effect, this one didn't really, so I'm just going to focus on this one from now on. And then the next step after that would be to, once I know that this venom is effective, I look at how many proteins are in there. So the proteins are the, the genetically encoded parts of the venom that are the doing parts. That's what's inflicting the pain. That's what's inflicting the doing, the, all the different effects that you see. So when I do that using a mass spectrometer, so this is a machine that measures, measures how big are these proteins? What are these proteins? How many are there? And so that's the first step, the second step that I usually do. And then usually there's about a hundred or so more, up to five hundred per venom. So the next step would be to separate out all these proteins into different fractions and keep testing. So you separate out one way, you get like separate into different fifty different parts, test each one, and then only focus on the one that was the that had the activity and you keep going down. So until you find the exact one that's causing the effect.
1: So once you've identified the venoms and the toxins within the venoms that you want mm-hmm. that you could be using as an insecticide spray or as an mm-hmm. antibiotic mm-hmm. perhaps what's the next step
0: so the next step is the exciting bit so the next part would be to start synthesizing it in on mass to try and find as much as you can and then uh, to get as much as you can to do all the other tests that need to be done. So then you need to know which insect is it actually working on. Is it specific for a type of insect? Because you would want it to be specific for the agricultural pests, for example. And you wouldn't want it to be affecting the bees, which is a big problem with current insecticides. Yes. So you don't want to be... So you, we need to find it something that's specific. And they do exist. There are some peptides that are effective only against a certain type of cockroach and will not kill the other type of cockroach, which is really cool so german cockroach and an american cockroach we found this spider peptide that will only act on one of them and not the other so that's another thing that you can do because initially working with the whole venom is actually really hard because you need large amounts whereas if you've got the exact peptide once you've narrowed it down it's easier to synthesize it in high quantities which means that you can do more tests a lot easier you don't have to keep separating the whole venom to get down to the small one it's a long process and it takes time So once you've got tested it on which insects, then you want to know if it's safe for humans on mammals. So you test it on different cells as well. And then you would test what's the best mode of delivery. So that's the other part. So there's whether it's a good insecticide uh, spray on or whether we need to incorporate it as a genetically modified plant. And that's how BT came along or whether you can fuse it as an, with an entomopathogen, which is a pathogen that just attacks insects, a virus, pa- viral pathogen. Incorporate the gene, because it is a protein, it means it's a gene, which means that you can insert it into that virus, and that way you enhance its effect and kill the insects that way. So there's different modes of delivery. The, there's like actually already... An insecticide that was commercialized from the Australian Funnel Web Spider, which my supervisor was a part of along with the University of Connecticut and UQ. And that was derived from the Funnel Australian Funnelweb, Web. And they've been able to commercialise it now over in the States, which is really exciting.
1: Yeah. So you're not doing this, but how do do you know how your partner milks the venom from the ants.
0: Yes, I do. I've done it a, a few couple of times because he did come over here and we went over the Blue Mountains and collected some Australian ones. But basically there's two ways of doing it and I've looked at both ways as to which one is better or not. The first way is to electrically stimulate the ant. So you actually get a pair of tweezers, run a voltage through them and that way they'll release the venom. <laughs> and the other way to do it is to actually, which is the usual way that we do it, is to dissect the whole venom gland out. So, and the venom gland is located just below the abdomen, so it's actually stinging you from the other side, not from the mouth part.
1: So, the ants that he's collecting, is there any risk that they're endangered as a species in South America?
0: The ones that we're working on, they're not, but I remember him saying that it's not the ants that are actually endangered, it's just the area. Sometimes he has to be careful where he's collecting because that would be a national park or something like that and he wouldn't be able to collect there. But apart from that, then not that I know of, no. Well, I think that this is a really exciting project because now we're looking for alternatives to feed our growing population. There's a massive starving population around the world. So if this is successful, it'll be able to help feed a whole lot of people, which is why I love it and why I love working on it.
1: Well, Samira Eilig... Thank you very much.
0: That's okay. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: That was Samira Eiley, who's just submitted her PhD on solving world hunger using venom from ants at the University of Technology, Sydney. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on radio? Record a voice memo on your phone or use the voicemail tab on the website. We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions, and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Join my patrons at patreon.com diffusionradio ...to support the show. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Sound check and fact checking by Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia... ...to 28 stations on the community radio network... ...including two RBM in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales... 8 CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek... two NVR in Nambucca Valley... three NBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia and 7LTN City Park Radio in Launceston, Tasmania. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science 360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos from this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 950 previous episodes archived on DiffusionRadio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Subscribe to the Diffusion YouTube channel at youtube.com slash c slash DiffusionRadio. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. more rewarding life.